All right. Well, welcome everybody. If you don't know who I am, my name is Sean. I've been here, uh, been out, it seems, a lot lately. Uh, I've not missed that many Sundays, probably just two, but it just the last month and a half have been a little bit crazy. So we did our mission trip to Dubai, which was exciting. Uh, and then uh, from there, came back from Dubai and immediately caught COVID and thought I was going to get it there, got it here. Who knows, right? Uh, so then I was out for a week with that. Uh, then, just recovering from COVID, uh, Sheila had a death in her family, and so we flew down to Arizona to care for family members down there and to help them plan out and be a part of the funeral, and then got off the plane from that, and a day or something later, got on another plane to go to our annual pastor's conference. So, uh, just been all kinds of stuff going on, and in the process of that, uh, all kinds of things still happening in, in the church and in the world, but uh, excited to be able to gather together this morning to uh, celebrate church. Uh, we're preparing as a country to celebrate Independence Day, which is an exciting thing for us. Uh, I think most of us kind of look forward to that, not just because it's on a Monday and it extends our weekend a little bit, but... Um, we really are blessed as a nation, I think, uh, to be able to have the freedoms that we have. I realize that uh, uh, every nation probably has their own version of Independence Day, but we don't live in every nation. We live in this nation. And so for us, we get to celebrate this, uh, not because we honor our uh, nation in some religious way. This isn't a religious holiday for us, but it is one that has personal impact to us. Uh, the country that we live in, the independence that we've gained, has established within its constitution as its first right, the right to worship. Freedom of religion. Now, for us, that's powerful. That's so powerful for us. And so we're going to have different things all throughout our city and all throughout the state and all throughout our country of people celebrating. I'm sure some of us uh, may overeat a little bit this weekend. We're going to spend some time outdoors. Uh, we're going to blow stuff up because nothing says independence more than explosions. Uh, but I would say one of the greatest ways that we can celebrate the independence of our nation is to exercise our rights. And for us today, we get to exercise that right to religious liberty by being in the Word. And so I'm excited about that. I hope you guys are as well. Uh, for us, we're in the book of Acts right now. And um, as we're working our way through the book of Acts, going a chapter at a time, uh, it's a pretty exciting book. It's a book where the gospel of Jesus Christ is on the move and it's spreading. And it was, of course, first there in the upper room and then it began to spread into the temple. It's spreading throughout the city of Jerusalem. Today we're going to see even some of those outlying cities starting to receive the gospel. As we work our way through the rest of the book, it's going to go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. We're going to see the gospel spreading. And of course, for that, we're thankful because it spread all the way to us. That we have the gospel of Jesus Christ thousands of miles away from Jerusalem, thousands of years away from the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We have the gospel message. The, the work of the apostles was effective in bringing the gospel to us. And so uh, we want to make sure that we're faithful to hear the word well. Uh, when we approach the Word of God, we're always going to ask the question, what is the Word of God saying to me? What is God saying to me in His Word? Now, I'm going to do my best to give you the general teaching, uh, but if you listen and if you start to compare the Word to yourself, as you look at the Word as if it's a mirror, you'll start to see the Word of God is going to speak to you. It's going to start to highlight areas of your life uh, that maybe need improvement, 
encouragement to sometimes they just bring you joy or promises, but you're going to start to see that the word of God is for you. And then once you see what God wants you to do or is asking of you, uh, then you need to start to make a plan to do something about it. So that's kind of the social contract we make in church. I will faithfully teach the word and you'll be faithful hearers of the word who become doers of the word. That's the, that's the hope anyway, right? That's what we're hoping to gain out of this, not just Wow, we went to church, it was an exciting moment, and now we'll go off to work and forget the church ever happened. No, this is intended to bring some sort of change into our life. Uh, Cody covered chapter 4 really well last week, I thought. Hopefully you guys did as well. What a blessing to have all these different people that can fill in. I think of all the years that I've been pastoring here and going all the way back, uh, whether it was Tim Little or Brian Shear or Aaron or Bob or Tom or Cody or some of the elders at different times just always have this ability that anytime I leave, the word still gets taught. It's still just a great thing to be able to have. Uh, Anyway, as we saw at the end of chapter 4, as Cody was teaching through this, uh, you see this amazing thing that was happening in Jerusalem. We highlighted it also in chapter 2. Just this amazing fellowship, the amazing spiritual things that were happening there in Jerusalem at that time. The church was vibrant. It was alive. It was exciting. There were miracles happening. There was people uh, sharing lives with one another, so much so uh, that we have this guy, Barnabas, whose nickname is uh, Son of Encouragement. That's a pretty good nickname. Um, he sells a tract of land and he just gives the money to the apostles. He, just, he sells his land, gives the money to the apostles and says, do whatever you want with it. The church is going really well at that time. Now, what we also saw in chapter 4 is there's a little bit of outside pressure on the church. You're starting to see uh, the uh, persecutions beginning. And so you saw the arrest of Peter and John in chapter 4. Chapter 5, we're going to see the great things that are happening in the church again. We're going to see that outward attack on the church. Another arrest is going to happen. But we're also going to start to see cracks in the fellowship of the church. And I don't want you to be discouraged by that. I'm actually encouraged by that. Because all of that chaos going around the church, and yet still God was working. Which is important for us, because I think some of us have this picture of the church, that it should somehow be perfect, and nobody should ever get their feelings hurt. And we should always get our way, and it should just be ponies and rainbows and happiness every day. No, the church is filled with real people, with real problems, with real struggles, and sometimes people get on each other's nerves, and sometimes people act sinfully, but the glory of the gospel is that grace and forgiveness can restore those relationships and heal those wounds, and so that's what we hope to see in the church. Well, chapter 5, verse 1 a copycat of Barnabas, it says in verse five, or chapter 5, verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? 
You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up. And after carrying him out, they buried him. Well, that took a bad turn fast, right? So Ananias and Sapphira, their names mean righteous and beautiful, which is somewhat of a conflict when you see their character. They sold a piece of property just like Barnabas did. They brought money from the sale of that property just like Barnabas did. And they, and they laid it at the apostles' feet just like Barnabas did. But in the process, they told just a little white lie about it. They just, they gave the impression that the money they brought was all the money they got from the sale of the property. That was the impression they gave. That was maybe even the words they said. It doesn't clearly state it here, just that it became known that they kind of made this known somehow that all the money they got from the property was the money that they gave to the apostles. But that's not really what happened, that he and his wife decided we'll give some of the money to the church and keep some of the money to ourselves. And as Peter's going to point out to him, they had every right to do that. They had every right to do whatever they wanted with the property, do whatever they wanted with the money. There's nothing wrong with what they did with the money. What was wrong was they lied about it so that they could get the reputation of Barnabas at a discount price. Right? Barnabas sold a piece of property, gave all the money. Well, everybody thought Barnabas was pretty awesome. Let's do the same thing. We'll keep some of the money for ourselves. We'll call it a finder's fee. We'll give a little bit of the money back to the church, but then we'll make everybody else think we did the same thing that Barnabas did. And everybody will think we're just as cool as Barnabas. Peter somehow finds out about their plot. It doesn't tell us. Uh, I like to just assume he had a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit. Uh, just because the nature of what the church was at that time, like all the power of God was focused on this one church, it seems, historically in this moment. All the power of God was focused on this one church at this one moment. It was a vital, important church that was needed by God to begin this movement of the gospel throughout the world. world. So his, all of his attention is on this church. And I believe the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter that this had happened. And so Peter is going to confront Ananias about this. Uh, interesting confrontation, though, uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, the first thing that is interesting about this is the blame is placed first on Satan and then on Ananias. Uh, look, it says here uh, that he said in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? But then in verse 4, uh, it says, um, uh, what is this that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Do you see how Peter is placing the blame in two courts? He's saying that Satan filled Ananias' heart to do this thing, and that Ananias worked with Satan to do this, that Ananias conceived this in his own heart. This is similar to Pharaoh, by the way, in the Old Testament. Part of the times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart against the people of Israel. And part of the time it says Satan hardened or God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's this kind of reality there that we have to understand that 
when we sin, we have responsibility for it. We've made the choice to sin. Even if Satan himself is behind the scenes doing everything he can do to convince us to sin. So it's not full Saturday Night Live where we just blame like the church lady. Could it be Satan? Hmm. We can't just blame Satan for everything. Satan, of course, is filling our heart with evil as much as he can. But ultimately, we have made a decision to follow after the things of Satan when we sin. So I love the way that's broke down for us. The other thing I think is important in the way that Peter defends this or defines this, uh, you might see it here clearly, but between verse 3 and 4, he's making a proclamation that the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, Look here in verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then in verse 4, you've not lied to men, but to God. He's making this distinction that the Holy Spirit is God. God. Now we have this Trinitarian belief in the church that there is one God eternally existent in three persons, which sounds completely odd, right? But we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And sometimes I think we're really good with God the Father, we're pretty good with God the Son, and the Holy Spirit is just kind of out there. We don't know what to do with that thing. It's a ghost. But no, this is the Holy Spirit, who is fully God. And when Ananias lied in that circumstance, the lie wasn't to Peter, the lie wasn't to the church. It was seen as an affront toward the Holy Spirit, who is God. But for us, doctrinally important to know that it's the Holy Spirit also who is God. Now, the result of this, this is also a little bit confusing for us, and we're actually going to see it repeated twice. The result of this, the moment of this, is that when he was confronted by Peter in that moment, when he heard the words, verse 5, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. Boom. Heart stops. Boom. Drops dead. This is not typical. This is not what the average Sunday looks like if you're a visitor today, just so you know. It's been a long time since anybody's died at church. give or take. (laughs) Now, this is just not typical. This is some special moment. Again, God's taking this early church. It was so important to get this gospel ministry flowing in this moment. He did something, and it might sound weird to you hear it like this, but God did something supernatural. He did something miraculous in this moment by putting this man to death. And he's about to do it again. Keep reading in verse 7. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she says, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in uh, and uh, found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. So three hours after Ananias dies, Sapphira shows up for church. Don't be late, right? She shows up later. She wants to receive some of the glory that her husband has received after announcing to the church this wonderful deed that they've done. 
Peter says, hey, uh, Sapphira, how much did you sell that land for again? And she lies. And Peter says, why would you agree with your husband to test the spirit of the Lord? The guys that buried your husband, they're coming back to bury you. And then she dies. Immediately, she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And they carry her out and they have to bury her as well. Now, um, there are people who have problems with this passage of Scripture for a couple of reasons. Um, one, which I think is the oddest reason, is um, why didn't somebody go find her and tell her their husband was dead? Three hours later, she still doesn't know her husband is dead. This is horrible. These people would do this to her. The second is, why would God put people to death at all? You see, people struggle with that question, right? They struggle with it all throughout the Old Testament. God would tell the nation of Israel, I want you to go destroy this city and all the inhabitants of that city. And we sometimes look at that and we get offended by that. All those precious people in there. Yes, all of them precious to God, more precious to him than they are to you, created by him. He sees every single one of them as a unique design of his, created in his image, image bearers of him. Every single one of those people. And every single one of them had one thing in common. In their sin, they were misrepresenting the image of God. Every single one of them. And because of their misrepresentation of the eternal God, he decreed, as he can, because he is the judge of all, the judge of the universe, he decreed that the penalty for sin, the wage of sin, Romans 6.23, is it's death. It's death. The question shouldn't be, does God have the authority to punish people for sin? Yes, he created those people. He set up the rules. He set up the laws. It's, it's under his authority. He has the authority to do those things. The question should be, why is God so gracious to us that he doesn't immediately put us to death when we sin? But he's patient with us. He gives us time to come to these conclusions for ourselves. He gives us time to come to a place of repentance you know, later the people are going to complain that God's slow about his promises of returning. Peter says he's not slow. He's patient with us. The wage of sin is death. You can actually see this principle in many places in Scripture. A very similar example in the Old Testament. You know, there's a guy by the name of Achan who stole uh, some of the gold from another nation that was supposed to be destroyed. God said get rid of all their idols, all their gold. Achan stole some for himself. And God, boom, killed him in the moment. It's happened before. I think it'll probably happen again. Hopefully not here. Hopefully not on a Sunday. <laughs> if it's a Tuesday, you know, it's a little different. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Actually, just think about the political ramifications in our world today. Like... If somebody dies in our church, there's going to be a coroner's inquest. There's going to be, you know, you got to get a death certificate. There's going to be police here. It's going to be this whole scene. Them, like, 
died, eh, take them and bury them. They're done. You don't leave the body out in a culture like that when you don't have embalming and all the stuff that we have today. There's no refrigeration. You've got to get that guy in the ground because surely he stinketh by now. That's the biblical term, right? In today's world, could you imagine the coroner have to write down on the death certificate? <laughs> Dropped dead. <laughs> what else would you say? Well, that's what happened. But you see kind of this strain throughout Scripture. Jesus talks about it in principle, I think, with the story or the parable of the... Uh, the lost it. The wayward son. What's that called? Prodigal son. Whew. Words gone. Disappeared from my brain. The prodigal son. Remember? He leaves his father's good gifts and he goes and the natural consequence of leaving the father was this downward spiral of destruction in his life. Ultimately to the point where he said, this is ridiculous. And he goes back to the father. That's a parable. It's a picture of what happens in our life when we, when we leave God. And you'll see this kind of downward spiral of destruction in your life. That downward spiral is intentional. The misery of the downward spiral of sin is designed to draw you back to God. You see, we leave him in rebellion. I want to do things my way. I'm going to be my own person. I'm going to be me. And God says, okay. There's a consequence to living that way. And ultimately, at the bottom of that spiral, people say, man, that didn't work out the way I'd envisioned it. <laughs> Maybe God will take me back. It leads us to repentance. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, when you take somebody and they refuse to repent, you confront them repeatedly, you eventually, you hand them over to destruction. You hand them over to the world, to Satan. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you have this story of this man that was involved in this uh, unholy sexual relationship. And Paul says, I've determined to hand this one over for the destruction of his flesh in the hopes of the salvation of his soul. In other words, that the natural consequences of his sin, the attack from Satan will be so heavy on him that eventually he'll say, Man, things were better at church than this. <laughs> things were better in God's arms and in God's plan than this. This pain and this heartache. It's the same thing happening in the world today. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we just talked about communion. He says, for those who take communion inappropriately, some are sick and others have died. There's a consequence for our sin. Uh, this is the struggle we have, by the way, culturally right now. We as the church are doing our best to proclaim the truth of who God is and how he says we should live. The world is trying to get us to accept sinful life and call it good. And we can't do it. And they look at us and they say, you're so hateful. And we say, we have the, the weight of history telling us that the result of your sin will be a downward spiral of destruction. Death, desperation, suicide, drug use, it all comes out of this. And we're trying to spare you from that. It's not because we hate you, it's because God loves you. He 
loves you. He wants to spare you from that downward spiral. Well, what was the result of this? We saw the severity of the sin. We saw the severity of the punishment. What was the outcome of all of this? In verse 11, and great fear came over the whole church. It said it in verse 5 as well. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. They were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. uh, None of the rest dared associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. All the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets, laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. The result was great fear, great signs and wonders. There were some who were afraid to associate with the apostles, and it makes sense. Like, I don't know, I know two people that died hanging out with those guys. I'm just saying. But they held them in high esteem. And many more believers, more and more believers. And so you have 120 in the upper room and then 3,000 get saved. And then the number jumps to 5,000 men alone. And then more and more in the last chapter and more and more in this chapter, you can see that the church is exploding with growth. In the middle of it all, the Holy Spirit is doing powerful stuff, signs and wonders at the hands of the apostles. This wasn't just every human being out there doing signs and wonders. I always like to make that clear. But in this moment, he was using the apostles for this purpose. So much so... So many people were getting healed that people were coming from other cities they had heard about it, much like the ministry of Jesus. And because they couldn't all get to the apostles, they would lay people in the street where the apostles might walk in hopes that as Peter walked by, his shadow might fall on them and people would get healed. And it's telling us that many were healed. How many? In verse 16, they were all being healed. This is not normal, in case you're curious. People get in my shower shadow just to get out of the sun sometimes, but there's a big guy. He can block the sun for me. I can block the sun for two of you. <laughs> but nobody like follows me around jumping into my shadow like, I'm going to get healed today. Pastor Sean's shadow. Yes. No, that'll just get you hurt. Don't do that. <laughs> this was a special moment. Again, God doing something special in this church in Jerusalem, in order to accomplish his plan. I don't want you to think that God doesn't still do special stuff. I think if you take the world as a whole and can count that as the church, I would say there are many more people being healed than there were in this moment worldwide. You just don't see them all. It's not concentrated in one place. I do believe and do see that God still heals when he wants to and how he wants to. But this is an amazing moment. All of these people, this multitude of men and women constantly being added to those who are being saved. It's this powerful revival moment. Or is it a revival, I guess, if it didn't exist before? It's this powerful launching off of the gospel ministry, which is ultimately going to take those people and spread this gospel throughout the world. But 
Not only were there problems inside the church, the problem of pride, now we're going to find there's a problem of jealousy outside the church. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would have come of this, would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. So, the chief priest, the high priest, this is the highest religious leader in the nation of Israel at that time. He was of the sect of the Sadducees, which is important because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And what was the primary thing that the apostles were teaching about Jesus? That he rose from the dead, yeah. This is a big deal. The highest ranking religious leader doesn't believe resurrection exists. This group is preaching that Jesus resurrected from the dead. You see how that might be a problem? And on top of it, that group that's preaching the resurrection of the dead, multitudes of people are coming to them and miraculous things are happening. And it's creating in this religious leader, the highest religious leader in the land, it's creating some jealousy in him. So he has the apostles arrested. It seems all 12 of them probably were arrested at this moment. And they were put into jail, and so they could say the rest of their life, yeah, did a couple days in the Jerusalem jail. Gives them street cred, right? But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and took them out, and he said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. An angel breaks them out of jail. Now, I know what you're thinking. Isn't that illegal? (laughs) Isn't it illegal to break people out of jail? That should be an issue, right? It's not illegal if you're the higher authority. And God is the higher authority. And all the governments of the world are to be in submission to him. God didn't break the law. That's not what he does. He is the law. So he commands his angels to go break these guys out of prison. And the angel says, now what I want you to do, which again, backwards, if you're just broken out of prison, I want you to go to a very public place and begin to preach. (laughs) That is not a great way to break out of prison. If you're looking for tips, don't do it this way. But this is what they did. They go to the temple and they start proclaiming. I love the way it says this, the whole message of this life. If you have the New American Standard Version, I'm not sure if all versions do this, but the New American Standard Version actually does a capital L on the word life. 
which is the translator's way of saying, when it's talking about preaching the whole message of this life, it's saying, preach the whole message of Jesus. So go out and proclaim his life, his death, his resurrection. The salvation that's found in him. Preach the life, the whole message of this life to the people. Well, the next morning, the high priest says, let's have our trial. Let's get the prisoners. We'll bring them in before the whole Senate here. We'll all make these decisions together about what we're going to do with these guys. Ultimately, we're going to find it in their heart. What he wanted to do is put them to death. That was his big answer to how to solve the problem of the resurrected Savior is to kill more people and see if they came back, I guess. So that's his plan. Only when they go to get him out of prison, there's nobody home. Everybody's freaked out about this. Nobody knows what to do. And then somebody reports back to them, hey, those guys you arrested yesterday, they're preaching again in the temple. They're preaching again in the temple. So they send the captains of the guards, and I love how it says this, they went to bring them back without violence because they were afraid that the people might stone them to death. They were so popular amongst the people that if they were to be arrested in a violent way, the people might kill their arresters. Kill the guards. So they bring them back. In verse 27, it says, When they had brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So they bring him back. They're going to question them. They have two issues with the apostles right now. Number one, we gave you strict orders to stop preaching and you continue to preach. Number two, you're blaming us for the death of Jesus. Which they did, right? We remember that. and We remember how that happened. They all got together. They accused Jesus falsely. They brought in false witnesses. Ultimately, they decided they blasphemed. They took him to Pilate and asked for Pilate to put him to death for insurrection, which of course never happened. And then ultimately... Jesus was put to death, but it was these same people who did that. These were the ones that did it. So they have these two problems with the apostles. So Peter answers and says, simply, God told us to. And if you tell me to do something and God tells me to do something different, I'm going to do what God says. We must obey God rather than men. We have a higher authority in God, higher than our state, our local, our national leadership. There's a higher authority. And it's God. And we're always submitted to him first. And when the lower authorities ask us to do something that's in opposition to what our higher authority God has asked us to do, in that moment we must obey God rather than man. Now, I don't want you to hear that wrong. Some people hear that wrong. They'll say to themselves, well, I work for God. I don't have to do anything my government says to do. No, that's not right. Jesus told us we need to follow our government. 
We can do everything our government asks us to do up to the point that they ask us to do something in opposition to what God has asked us to do. That's the line. There's a lot of people out there, I'm not paying my taxes, I'm a Christian. Enjoy prison. I don't know what to tell you, man. God's not coming to get you. You're going to do your whole time. Because he established the authority of the government over you. And he says to be submitted to that government. But the line is when the government asks you to do something in opposition to what God asks of you. We obey the higher authority. That's the way that works. And then what does Peter do? He just immediately goes to preaching the gospel to the guys who just told them to stop preaching the gospel. Uh, You can see the case that he's making here is, again, exactly what they accused him of. Uh, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Speaking to the high priest who is a Sadducee who does not believe in the resurrection, I don't know what to tell you. God raised up Jesus. I believe in the resurrection now because it happened. Whom you put to death, they didn't like that accusation, but it's true. Whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. But then what he does is he helps them, I hope, understand who Jesus truly was claiming to be. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand. That's talking about the ascension of Jesus up into heaven. He has him as a prince, which means he's over the people. He has him as a savior of the nation of Israel to bring repentance, to bring forgiveness of sins. All of that is what he's claiming that Jesus is to do. That's what Jesus' purpose is. That's the gospel that he's proclaiming. And then he points out, and there's two witnesses of these facts. Witness number one, we saw him. We saw him on the cross. We saw him die. We saw him buried. And then we saw him walking around with holes in his hands. We're witnesses. We saw it. But then there's the other witness. The other witness is the Holy Spirit that they've been experiencing. The work and the power of God operating through them is evidence that they're proclaiming the truth that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the one who brings repentance and forgiveness of sins. And that same Holy Spirit in verse 32, this is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to whom? Those who obey him. It's the same Holy Spirit who indwells all of us, which is why Ephesians says the Holy Spirit is the symbol, the sign, the stamp, the seal of your inheritance, of your salvation. The evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life is an evidence that you are saved. You receive that because you're obedient to Jesus Christ. You submit to him as Lord. It's the same witness that proclaims the gospel to you. Verse 33. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill him. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council, gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. He said to them, men of Israel, take care what you purpose to do or propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thudius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, 
But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men. Let them alone. If this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. So Gamaliel, a Pharisee, stands up, uh, kind of an interesting character. First of all, being a Pharisee, he's somebody who Jesus would have rebuked quite openly. Jesus had a lot to say about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, right? Um, But the Pharisees had one thing in common with Jesus, and that was that they disagreed with the Sadducees. So Gamaliel stands up, and he's going to give some pretty wise counsel. He's going to say, look, this happens from time to time. People rise up, they think they're somebody, they think they're the Savior, it happens. But then they die, and their followers go away. Now, he could be saying this in two different ways. One, he could be saying, these guys, these 12 guys here, they're going to die someday, and all this will die with them. Or he could be saying, their Savior Jesus died. But his followers aren't following away, falling away. Maybe this is something different. He could be saying it either way, I think. But ultimately, his point is, let's just step back a little bit and make sure we're not fighting against God. If this is of God, it will succeed. 2,000 years later, we're still following the resurrected Jesus Christ. It succeeded, right? This was of God. This was of God. This was this powerful moment. Gamaliel is an interesting guy for another reason. Uh, You'll see later in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 22. This is the guy that trained Paul to be a Pharisee. So in the back of my mind, I wonder, was Paul watching all of this on this particular day? It's not going to be but a couple chapters before Paul makes his arrival on the scene. Chapter 8. Or at the very least, did Paul have this conversation at some point with Gamaliel? Gamaliel's like, I'm telling you, don't mess with these guys. Paul's like, yeah, I'll do what I want, old man. And he gets permission to go out and arrest them and to put them to death. And Jesus is like, the old man told you, don't mess with me. Now I'm going to show you what your life's going to be like. This was good wisdom, though. Sometimes I think we're fighting for God when he doesn't need our help. Sometimes it's okay to not add fuel to the fire of those who are so cranky about things and to let the long arc of God's justice reign. We don't have to fight every fight. We don't have to fight every battle because we already know that victory was won at the cross of Jesus Christ. We already know that the gates of hell can't overcome the church of God, the plan of God. We already know the end of the story. And sometimes we get so freaked out and so worried about things, so panicky, like if I don't stand up today, God's going to fail. No, he's not. I'm not saying you shouldn't stand up, but don't feel like it's your responsibility to do what God can't or won't do. 
God can and will do whatever he wants when he wants. Stand with him at the right moments, at the right times. But always know that he wins in the end. All right, well, let's finish this up. Verse 40, just like the other chapters, we're going to see these great things are happening. It says, they took his advice after calling the apostles in. They flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Every day in the temple, house to house, the bruised, battered, scarred apostles continued to preach. And I like the way it's worded here, depending on your translation, either Jesus the Christ or Jesus as the Christ. It's a separation that we don't always put there. Sometimes we just jam it together and it sounds like we're saying his first and last name is Jesus Christ. But no, it's a title What they are preaching to the whole world is that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. They just continued preaching that in the temple courts, from house to house. They just kept going. And when they were beat for it, they celebrated. We were worthy enough to be beaten for the name of Jesus. Sounds a little weird. But there's a reality to that. This is really our mission, isn't it? It's still the same. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. It's still our mission. We still, corporately as a church, but even individually as believers, so corporately in the temple courts, individually house to house, you bring with you the good news that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the Messiah, the Savior. That's our mission. That's our purpose. And that's our goal. And it seems like a good thing that we could have a conversation with somebody about. That would be my question for you guys this week. Every week I ask you to have a conversation with somebody about the chapter. I'm going to alter it just a little bit this week. Let's try to have a conversation this week with somebody who doesn't believe. That's a little harder, I know. Already in my mind, I'm freaking out of all the times where I was forced into evangelism. Taking a class, like, you've got to go do this, and I need you to share the gospel with 14 people before next week. I'm like, oh my goodness, that sounds miserable. This isn't forced. I'm not going to check your homework. I'm just encouraging you. You can have these gospel conversations, not just with other believers to encourage them, but bring it up. It's real simple. Just when you're hanging out with somebody who's not a believer, just ask a very simple question. Why do you think Jesus is called Christ? See if they know. They might blow your mind. Maybe like, dude, I was Baptist for 47 years. I already know the answer to this. Great. They know the answer. Maybe they have no clue. I don't know. Why is that? Isn't that his last name? I always thought it was his last name. No, it's a title. Really? Yeah, it means the anointed one. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's not Jesus Christ. He's Jesus the Christ. Now you've got a conversation going. And they might be like, oh, cool beans. I'll save that for trivia night and they'll be done with it. Maybe that's fine. But maybe they'll want to know more. 
Have a question, have a conversation, I mean. And then in preparation for next week, only 15 verses, read chapter 6 every day. Let the Word of God begin to till your heart and prepare you for the Word to come into your life. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so thankful for your Word and the chance for us to be together as believers today. Father, we glorify you and we worship you as a a God who is a God to be feared. Now, we recognize that you have the means and the authority to bring us the punishment of death for our sins. You are that powerful. You are that strong. Lord, we fear you for those things. But we also worship you because you saw fit to provide a way of salvation for us. And we worship you because you were patient with us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So thankful, Lord, you didn't ask us to clean our life up first and then come to you. Lord, you allowed us to bring our mess of a life to you. And now you're in the process of conforming us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, of building a life for us. For these things, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.